Guess it'd be a bad time to just do a talk today, huh? <laughs> Guess we better preach. Join with me in prayer uh, that the Lord would come and move among us. Lord God, we are a people in need of the eternal words of life. God, we echo the Apostle Peter when you asked him where he would, where else would he want to go? Where did he want to leave to? Peter said, where would I go? Lord, we confess that we often find other places to go. So God, we need you this morning to breathe your Holy Spirit upon us, to convict us of sin, to show us that much of what this world screams to us is wrong. And God, we are just needy people. We need you this morning. And God, I pray that you would teach us from your word, your eternal, everlasting, steadfast word. God, that it would change us. Don't pass us by this morning, Lord, but show us Christ, and may we find him more beautiful than anything this world has to offer us. We need you this morning, Lord. Teach us now. Grow us now. In your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. An unusual passage of Scripture. Um, and we get to work our way through it because when you are expositional through books, you don't get to skip anything. And so um, it was quite comical when I do my study. Uh, I oftentimes look at old dead guys uh, because old dead guys, uh, you know whether or not they lived out their faith because they're dead. Um, you worry a little bit about younger guys, but nevertheless, uh, it's quite interesting to me in commentaries how many of these pastors, preachers, and theologians uh, have lots to say all the way up to chapter through chapter five, and then they skip uh, one through eleven, and they pick it up in verse twelve. Um, and so I'm going to attempt what a lot of old faithful dead guys didn't attempt, apparently, <laughs> and I'm going to try to teach this and apply it to us today. First Corinthians chapter six. 1 through a letter, 1 through 11. This is a letter to the Corinthians written by Paul, inspired by God. It's the word of God. It says this, verse 1. When one of you have a has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough? to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Have you ever heard that the New Testament does not speak against homosexuality? There you go. Just in case you watch too much news. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you... And and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the whole context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11 deals with disputes in the church and how they were being handled in the church in Corinth. And this text gives us the answer for why the way they were handling it was sinful and shameful. And in this, I want to give us some simple steps for Christian conflict resolution. Um, That's not something we've been taught very well, amen? Probably wouldn't have as many churches as we have today, right? Got a couple of amens there. The overarching theme is that Christians, in this text, if you take 1 through 11, here's the overarching theme, and that is Christian behavior, because they are in Christ, must be different than those who are not in Christ. It's the overwhelming theme of 1 through 11. But let's do a little bit of history here. As you well know, the Jews... By and large, settled their disagreements in the synagogues. And even after Roman rule, uh, they were allowed by Rome to continue that process. They solved their own problems in their own synagogue because Jews, by and large, would say it this way If we have to go to something outside of the church, their idea of the synagogue, then we are saying that God and the scriptures that we have are not sufficient enough to solve our problems, that we must instead go to unbelievers to solve our problems. So by and large, Jews said, we're not going to do that. And if you remember, that was still happening when Jesus was here because the Jews under Roman law were allowed to decide just about any case except for putting someone to death. Then they had to go to Pilate. So that's why the Jews had to go through that because they were used to solving all of their own problems. Now, Paul, a Jew, writing to Corinthians who were mainly Gentiles in Corinth... He had a complete familiarity with the church, those within the synagogue, those who called themselves believers now, those who call themselves Christians, they should solve their own problems. Now, this was a big deal in Corinth. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Corinth, but we have, and how they, how they're how happy they were to sue each other. But we have a lot of information about Athens, which is about 50 miles away. Historically, we know a lot about Athens, not as much about Corinth in the way they behaved. But in Athens, uh, they were a lawsuit-friendly society. Sound familiar? (laughs) The idea, I have a friend who is an attorney, and he said once, I said, can you sue for this? And he said, brother, you can sue for anything if you want to pay a lawyer. (laughs) You can sue for anything. And that's interesting that that was how we think of it today, and it was very much how they thought about it in Athens. And so Paul, knowing that they were a lawsuit-happy society and that lawsuits were just a way of life for them, in fact, in 
Athens, juries. It was so, such a lawsuit happy society and so much concentration was placed upon the law that just about everybody either practiced law or participated in juries. In fact, I found this fascinating. Um, our juries, by and large, for criminal cases, consist of 12, and you can have more for grand jury and you can have more for civil, but in Athens, the number of jurors for a case could number in the thousands. That's fun. <laughs> and it was a majority rule, but everyone was so fascinated. And remember, if you've been with us in Corinthians, remember what they were about. They were about great speeches. And so everyone believed that whoever was, could give the better speech could win an audience, and that's who they followed. And so it makes sense that in the unbelieving world, wrapped in the DNA of that culture, being a part of a jury to hear the arguments was a national pastime. It was like baseball for them. They loved it. And so these Gentiles who had become believers continued to solve their disputes in the exact same manner. In fact, one ancient writer from this time wrote the following. <clears throat> After drinking comes mockery, and after mockery comes filthy insults, and after insults comes a lawsuit. <laughs> that was, <clears throat> that sounds like 2020, amen? That's first century Rome. Now, we know from the earlier chapters of Corinth that there were several disagreements among the brethren, and it is possible, I don't think it's a stretch, to imagine that some of these disagreements that we heard about in chapters 1, 2, and 3 may have actually spilled over into the actual court system. Now, um, before you begin to think, well, this is how we need to address court systems today, you need to understand that there is a significant difference between our modern-day court system and our style of government and first-century Rome. And, and it's a very slippery slope to start making those comparisons without understanding history and looking for the universal truth in the scripture, there are major differences in the American court system and the Roman court system. There are similarities, for sure. There were some things that were definitely based upon that, but by and large, it is different. So you should not, as I have heard some people preach, you should not take this passage to mean that Christians should never be involved in civil litigation. Now, here's a couple of reasons. Let's just walk down this real quickly. Paul identifies the justice or judicial system of Rome as being occupied by only unbelievers. It's not the case for us today. Does that make sense? That's just one little. Now, although they should show no partiality based upon their faith, the reality is our system of government, whether we want to believe it or not, there are believers in there. You wonder sometimes, amen, um, they can't get along either, but uh, you have lawyers who are believers, right, maybe. Anyway, uh, am I the only one that's ever had to pay a lawyer? <laughs> Apparently so, but there are lawyers who are believers, there are judges who are believers, and so it's a little different than what we have in first century Rome. And it is, I think, a slippery slope as well to say that there is a cultural relevance to this passage that may not fully, all you seminary guys getting ready to panic, apply to us today. There's some, there's some things that don't completely 
carbon copy to, 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 carbon copy to our modern-day times. So what do you do with a passage like this? Well, you one, you need to find out what this passage meant to the original hearers because that is the intent of the Spirit. What did it mean to these Corinthians? What did it mean to them, the original recipients of the letter, the original readers of the letter? What was Paul trying by the power of the Spirit to address to them? And then you look for the universal truth that is applicable to us today. Now, some of you are already panicking because you think I just said something that the Bible is not valid for us today. That's not what I said. I recognize there's a slippery slope. But you can't say, well, they didn't sue each, you're not allowed to sue each other in first century Rome, so that doesn't work for us today uh, because there are some exceptions to us today. For instance, child custody hearings. There's just one. How do you deal with that? Unbelievers Deal with it a certain way. Believers might have to handle it a different way. Maybe believers who are divorced. You see how this works? The, the, the real world? And maybe they live in different areas and they attend different churches, different denominations, and they have no interest in working alongside each other. And somehow you have to figure out how that's going to work. Even people who get along in divorces will still sometimes have to go to court to lay out those things. So there are, I believe, exceptions to this rule. And at the end of the day, I don't believe this passage is discussing legal ramifications for believers. I don't think that's the point. So let's look at why Paul was frustrated about them going to court against one another. In verse 8, he says this, but you, speaking to the believers, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Their desire to sue each other was not based on a desire to reconcile or come up with a solution. Much like our arguments today. Most of our attempts to reconcile with people is not really an attempt to reconcile. It's an attempt to get someone else to admit that you were right. Right? Right? In Corinth, they were going to court to defraud their own brothers in Christ. That was their purpose of going to court. I want something that you have, and I'm going to get it from you to satisfy myself because of something that you have said or done to me. And Paul says, you're doing this to your own brothers in Christ. This is not about the court system. This is about the attitude of unbelievers who would go use a court system to defraud their own brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I know it's flashing. It's freaky. Uh, I think that's a pulsating that we're having with the service today. I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe we should just kill it. I don't know. That might be better. We may have to. I know there's going to be verses up there, but if we need to, we can kill it, and I'll just read through them. So you can hear it in Paul's voice here, his frustration that he has already spent the first few chapters trying to get them to understand that they are to be unified. And after addressing that unity, he gives examples of the things they should be concerned about, which is sexual immorality in the church that was completely unaddressed. And then he moves right into, and by the way, not only are you not dealing with the sexually immoral people in your own church, not people who have failed, the people who are living lifestyles, 
totally against God, and the church is saying, ah, we'll worry about that later. He's saying, no, you're not dealing with that. You are dealing with each other in the court system for the attempt of defrauding somebody. And you over here trying to decide which leader you should follow and which one best represents Jesus. And in the meantime, you're ignoring sexual immorality within your church and you're spending your time in court cases trying to defraud one another. This is a church, folks. So can we quit being shocked by churches that have problems? I mean, can we really? I'm so annoyed by that. I don't go to church because there's so many struggles up there. I mean, really, that's been happening since the beginning of time. I had a pastor tell me once, the, the best thing about pastoring is preaching. The worst thing is all the people. And as a congregation, you would probably say the best thing about church is all the people. The worst thing about the church is all the pastors. I mean, I, we're people. And we gather together. And we, and it's like This is like one big car ride to California. And everyone has different sized bladders. Amen? That is not in my notes. And the elders are like, can't believe you just did that. And no, one, and no one wants to eat at the same place. Do you, do you see how this is working? We cannot look at the Corinthian church and say, can't believe they acted that way. We act the same way all the time. We ignore the same things and fight the same way. And Paul's saying, if we are believers, you cannot go to court to defraud a brother. That's crazy to him. And remember, Paul <laughs> argues that the church should handle these civil matters, and I love how he does this. He says, I say this to your shame, and you can hear, I believe, the sarcasm dripping from his letter because earlier he was dealing with the arrogance of the Corinthians who thought they were so wise and intelligent. And then he says it this way, I say this to your shame, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Are, are you serious? Y'all been talking about how smart y'all are and how much that you don't really need us apostles anymore? Are, are you saying now that there's no one intelligent enough within your group to settle these civil cases that you have to instead go to unbelievers? You can almost hear the sting of his letter. Then he says this, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? These are the kind of cases they're suing each other over, and he calls them trivial cases. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Now, what is Paul referencing here regarding believers judging the world and angels? Here's my answer. I'm not real sure. You like that? And neither are a lot of other people. Now, here's what we know. Daniel 7, uh, Matthew 19, Luke 22, Revelations 2, Revelations 3, uh, both letters to the churches, uh, Revelations 20, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 6, all allude not only that the apostles will judge the nations upon 12 thrones, but it also implies that believers themselves will in some way judge nations and angels themselves, which you would think and most would argue are fallen angels. But that doesn't need to be fully understood. And don't get lost on this. That does not need to be fully understood to see what Paul is saying here. If we are capable by the Spirit of God to 
judge those kind of matters, can we not solve trivial cases within our own body? That's his implication. So Paul calls out their failures in a stinging rebuke to solve their own problems instead of doing their lawsuit-friendly, wrongdoing, fraud-attempting actions that they have been. And then, in an even more stunning rebuke, 9 through 10, he compares their attitudes toward their brothers. And I just, I have missed this for years. Because I take 1 through 6 as something, and then I read 7 through 11 differently. This is a letter. And too often the verses and the breaks don't help us any. Paul's frustrated with their attitude and the way they're defrauding their own brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he rolls into this. Do you not know that the unrighteous, meaning those of you who are defrauding one another in the court system, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He just grouped those people together. We key in on homosexuality. We key in on sexual morality. Do you key in on the inability to solve disagreements in a godly manner? Because Paul tied them together. That's, that's humbling. Now, Paul is clearly not saying that committing one of these sins dooms you to hell. You must have a biblical context here. Uh, he is speaking to believers and he is saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that people who live a lifestyle of sin, we address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, people who are known for these sins, um, thieves and greedy and sexually immoral people, uh, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God because believers who claim Christ but have lifestyles that do not show Christ but instead show only sin, Paul over and over again, and the Bible over and over again says, if you claim Christ and there is no evidence of Christ in your life, but instead you're known as this, you're not backslidden, you're not saved. That's what's not preached from the pulpit anymore. Clearly taught in the scriptures. That's why Paul's urgent about this. The way you defraud one another Listen, listen, you can't inherit the kingdom of God that way. Neither will the sexually immoral and those who practice homosexuality and the greedy. And he goes through the list. He's telling them, you must be different if you claim Christ. We heard it in our elder discussion during our congregational prayer time. We as believers are called to do what with our flesh? Crucify it, not indulge in it. And Paul's saying, listen, if you are who you say you are, you must stop living like this because it's not what you've been called to do. Christians fail 
Mistakes are made. But how you walk out that mistake is all the evidence we need to look at for whether or not Christ is real in your life. But Paul has one more gut punch left. After explaining all of these things that most of us are like, that's right, that's, that's how bad America is today. We want America's bad about and We all want to get on the American kick about how bad everything is. This is Corinth and all the sins they struggle with. And Paul says this, and such were some of you. There were homosexuals in the church who had been redeemed. There were sexually immoral people who had been redeemed. There were adulterers who had been redeemed. There were thieves who had been redeemed. And there were people who used to take their brothers and sisters to court to solve their problems, but they had been redeemed. And Paul is saying, you used to be that. And then he reminds them, but listen, you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is not who you are anymore. You don't have to live like that anymore. Why? Because of Christ. You've been washed. You've been changed. You've been redeemed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Quit living like that. Let it Go and live as Christ has called us to live. So here's this universal truth. Christians must behave differently. Not to earn God's love, but because they're already loved. That's the great news of the gospel. We lay this stuff down because we're loved. We fail We make terrible errors. We seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And we get up and say, I don't want to live like that anymore. Because my God loves me. I want to walk out of life pleasing to him, worthy of the gospel. So even in how we handle our conflicts, we must do that differently than the world. Because our gospel witness is at stake And the church's witness is at stake. Now, you may think we're done. Well, we haven't even started the sermon yet. That was an introduction. So here, I think this is going to be like a a foundational sermon that's not a part of our pillars, a foundational sermon for our church. Because if the Lord merges two churches together, you know what that's right for? Conflict. (laughs) You remember the motto I always told you we should have as a church? Join our church, guaranteed to hurt you at least once. So how do we solve this? I want to give us some some very clear steps from the scripture. I'm going to go through it really quick. You need to take notes. And I want to encourage you that if you get ready to have a conflict with somebody, you go back to this sermon, not because I taught it, but because it's the word of God, and you think carefully about what you're going to do. So how do we handle conflict among believers? Now, I want to make a quick little footnote here. Um, The church handling disputes instead of the court system does not extend to criminal conduct. This is not a passage for the church to hide sin 
within its walls. Think about sexual abuse, violence toward women. That is not what Paul is speaking to here. He is saying trivial cases. Disagreements that could be solved by the brothers, and yet you go to unbelievers. This is not an attempt to hide sin within the wall. Don't ever think that at all. So, how do we handle conflict among believers? Because it's going to happen. And I'll be honest with you, I never heard sermons on this. Maybe it was taught, and I just didn't want to listen because I didn't like solving conflict. I don't know. But um, how do we solve conflict? So, so you're going to get offended. How do you solve that? Here's the first one. Are you ready? Let it go. If you sing the song, I'll throw a fit. <laughs> you got to let it go. Proverbs 19.11 says it this way. Good sense makes one slow the anger, and it is his glory, it is his glory to overlook an offense. I love it when people say you need to reconcile all offenses. Well, brother, you're going to be busy. Amen? You're going to run out of time. I don't know when you're going to work. I don't know when you're going to eat. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. You say, well, that's Old Testament, Jason. Give me New Testament. I would argue that they both count, but whatever. 1 Peter 4, 8 says it this way. Above all, above all, that's above all. <laughs> Keep loving one another earnestly. Do you want to know why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Guess what's assumed? There's going to be a multitude of sins that occur against you, and you should love earnestly anyway. You know why? Because it covers that stuff up. It covers that stuff up. Let me help you out. We're going to go a little long today. Sorry. Um, and we have a short meeting after that. And, well, I'm not apologizing anymore. Welcome to Sovereign Life Fellowship. <laughs> uh, we don't have Wednesday night service. There you go. Um, how many of you have ever been at a red light? How many of you have ever been at a red light and the person in front of you, the light turns green and the person in front of you does not go? Oh, how many of you are in a hurry at that moment? And how many of you lose Jesus? Can I just, anybody? You just get frustrated, you get upset, and you're upset, and you're angry. Now, how many of you have ever been the person at the red light who didn't go when it was green? And people honk behind you, and what do you say? You people in a hurry? Gah! And you're all frustrated. But just last time, you were the person behind that's why we struggle to solve disputes. Because we are selfish, self-centered, arrogant punks. Amen? And we want everything done our way, in our timetable, and exactly how we say it should go. I mean, we need them to go because the light's green. And when it's us, we're like, calm down back there. Golly, you can only drive 50. That's how we respond. We should learn to let it go. Paul alludes to this. Instead of going to court, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? This is the longest point, by the way, but it's one that I want to go, I really want to hammer this. You want to solve a lot of church problems? Learn to let things go. Learn to let it go. You didn't get consulted on the concrete color? Sorry. Is that too close to home? 
You just got to let things go. By the way, we haven't had any that I really any heavy complaints at all that I'm aware of. But nevertheless, I'm thinking if it's in your mind, you just got to let it go. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42, Jesus said it this way. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Amen, brother. That's what I agree with, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's almost like the Bible's speaking the same thing. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who borrow, would borrow from you. Understand what it means to allow yourself to be defrauded and wronged instead of entering into an unfruitful conflict that doesn't improve our witness for the gospel. The world responds when they're offended and they want resolution now. Christians are called to be different. We're called to be different. Number two, confront the person alone after self-examination. Confront the person alone after self-examination. I'm going to go really quickly here. The idea of alone is important. Don't talk to 40 people about it. I'm just getting counsel. No, you're not. You're building a team that makes you feel like you're right. Amen? Which boosts your little thought process. That's what's really happening. Instead, you should self-examine yourself. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone in parentheses after making 34 phone calls. No, between, he, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There is a lot at stake here in the area of unity. A lot of problems would be solved if it stayed between the two people that it happened against instead of bringing a whole bunch of other people, and it colors your mind of how they act and how they behave. Keep it between two. Self-examine yourself, Matthew chapter 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and not notice the log in your own eye? And Jesus would say it this way. Fix that first. Then you will be able to see clearly enough to remove the speck from the other person's eye. So before you go in, guns a-blazing, examine your own heart. And maybe you arrive at a conclusion that this isn't worth fighting about. Maybe I should just let it go. Number three, this one's for me. Limit your word count. <laughs> Proverbs ten nineteen: where words are many, transgression is not lacking. And whoever restrains his lips is prudent. How many times have you been in an argument with your spouse and they said something you're like, well, oh, well, okay, all right. You want to bring that up? You know what you just said? Floodgate time, right? And the Bible would say, limit that word count. Be careful of what you say. Restrain your lips. I had a friend ask me this once. I thought it was great. He gave me three questions. I don't think it originated with him. But he said, before you say what you're going to say in the middle of conflict, ask yourself these three questions. Should it be said? Should it be said now? And are you the one qualified to say it? Usually, the answers to those questions are no. Be careful when you go to engage in conflict that you limit your word count to what happened and not bring up 74 other things. 
limit. I had a pastor once that I served on staff with, and we dealt with conflict within the church. And they would come in, and they would bring up this other and this other. And he was like, okay, I hear that. I hear that. And we hear that. But what we were talking about is this one thing. Yeah, but what about, we can deal with that. We can set up an appointment for that later. But today, we're dealing with this one thing. And it was so frustrating for people because they don't want to deal with that one thing. They want to accept some blame while they lob blame on you. Isn't that how we are as humans? Now, number four, that doesn't work. Go and build a team to talk trash about them and gossip. No, that doesn't work. Involve the elders. If you think the offense warrants it. But be well aware that if you come to our elder team with a complaint, you are more likely to be told, why don't you just let that go? You know why? Because the Bible seems to have an overwhelming thought process about that. Let it go. But if the situation warrants it, we will address it. And here's how I would ask you to say, is this worthy of sitting with the elders to discuss? Is it a grave enough conflict that it threatens the church's witness? Is it grave enough of a conflict that it threatens the church's witness or calls in the question the other person's faith? Think about it that way. If it's not, but you're unsure, let the elders make a decision. Matthew 18, 16. If, he, if your brother, after taking going to him one-on-one, does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And once the elders are involved, any additional, any additional steps should be decided by the elders. Number five, what if the issue isn't resolved the way you wanted it? Number five, live in peace as much as it has to do with you. Romans chapter 12, 16 through 18 said this way, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or so or or do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Now, on a quick note, as we begin to wrap up, if you have wronged someone and you know it, you should go seek forgiveness. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So if you know, don't wait for next week. Call someone. Seek forgiveness. Now, in closing, revisiting the Matthew 18 passage, our elder reading, the reason it was so long, why is it so important for us to forgive? Because it has gospel implications. Here's why. Verse 35 of Matthew chapter 18, after Jesus gives this parable about the uh, master who, tried, who was forgiven a large debt and then he tried to hold another one in you know, and throw, throw someone else in prison for a little bitty debt. And you remember that whole story? We read through it in Matthew 18. Verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I don't know about you, but that's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Here's why. An unforgiving heart is not evidence of a regenerated heart. An unforgiving heart is not evidence of, an, of a regenerated heart. A believer should remember how much he has been forgiven and extend 
that forgiveness. And when you allow things to just let it go, you are extending grace and forgiveness. And I guarantee you, you do not want members of our church to log all of your offenses. Amen? I hope you're not keeping up with every time I say something stupid. Because if you do, you better get on the Amazon monthly shipment of paper. Because <laughs> that'll save you a lot of money. Because you're going to need a lot of paper to keep up with my... Now, doesn't excuse my behavior. I should be held accountable and I should grow. But you should forgive. The gospel serves as our foundation for forgiveness. And he forgave us. He forgave us. How much more should we be willing to forgive others? Personal loss. Allowing yourself to be wronged is better than gospel opportunities lost. It's better. Now, as Keith comes, you may say, what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. They say it every week, and I do it, and I hope to do it until the Lord calls me home, because we need to be reminded every week. Here's the gospel. That you, you were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally, which is why we end up with disputes. You sin naturally. No one had to teach you. You could teach the class. And that sin separated you from a holy, holy, holy God. And yet, even while you were in sin, think about this. Not after you raised your hand and said, you know, I'm thinking this may not be the right way to live. No, no, no. While you were sinning, God loved you. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to live a life that you can never live and to pay your penalty on the cross. That for those who would repent and believe, Jesus would take your sin and give you his righteousness. <laughs> that is good news. And people would say, well, don't I have to say a certain kind of prayer? Don't I have to repeat a certain, uh, you know, a certain mantra? Don't I, have, don't I have to do these kind of things? The Bible repeatedly says, repent and believe. And you can do that right now in your chair, or you could come talk to me after service, or, or you could drive home and on the way home do that. You could do that in your bed tonight. Just say, this is not, this repenting, this, this is not the direction I want to live my life. This, I, I see something different now, and I want to lay that aside. And Jesus, I adore you, and I want to follow you the rest of my life. That's repenting and believing. And you would say, well, how do I know that that really happened? Because your life would never be the same again, which is what Paul is screaming here in 1 Corinthians 6. You guys should be different, so different, that even when someone harms you, you're willing to just suffer wrong for the gospel. That is a church I want to be a part of. Not one that leaves me in my sin, but one that definitely recognizes I'm going to sin and I'm going to fail. And that grace and mercy is extended. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray that this church would be a church that um, is not sheltered from problems or struggles or conflicts. God, we are people. But God, that we would be a people that are so gospel-saturated. That we are constantly reminded of 
what you have forgiven us of. That forgiveness and grace being extended to brothers and sisters happens so naturally and so quickly for us. And so God, I pray now for people in this room who are well aware of things they have done to others that were sinful or wrong, whether it be within this church or in a workplace or in a family. God, that you would spur them to be people who would confess that sin. And I pray, God, that if we as individuals find ourselves at a table with someone asking for forgiveness, God, that we would be people quickly to forgive. Always being reminded of the witness that we have for the gospel. And that this church, Sovereign Life Fellowship, would be a shining light in this community of how we behave toward one another. We love you, Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen. We're going to do a little worship, a little singing, but I would ask you to check your hearts and just examine yourselves. See if there's some things you need to seek the Lord for forgiveness for. Maybe you need to uh, write something down on a piece of paper, some people you need to talk to. Uh, maybe there's some people you need to let it go. Some of you have got a root of bitterness because you just can't let things go that people have done to you. And it's just, it's just festering in your soul. And I would just remind you, aren't you glad Jesus doesn't do that to you? Yes. Respond with grace and mercy and love.